Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. This is the time of year that uh, we enjoy so much uh, wonderful Christmas music. You know, one of the um, uh, easy things today with technology is I can take all of my Christmas CDs and put them on a playlist, and I can put everything I used to take, you know, all sorts of space in my house, and I can put the whole thing on a little device like this, and I can play countless number of songs, on, listen to them on my headphone or put them in a speaker, and all my Christmas music that I like uh, can be on my little uh, iPod type of device or your phone, whatever else you have that you use. It's really great, isn't it? Yeah, but it's not as much fun as the old days when we had record albums. And I could go through my collection of record albums. I mean, it's just different, you know? I mean, you can't really put a lot of artwork and stuff on these things. You can, but I can kind of take a walk down memory lane of Christmas as my childhood and early teen years as I look through some of the record albums that I have. This one here, Bing Crosby. You know what? This is actually the number one and number three best-selling single of all time. Is on of all time. Guinness Book of Records. White Christmas is the number one, and Bing Crosby's Silent Night number three of all time on this album. You could buy this for a dollar, you guys, at the certain places, <laughs> but you gotta have something to play it on. It doesn't. It doesn't fit in your. Uh, <laughs> CD player too well. What would Christmas be without Elvis Presley's Christmas album, huh? Oh, yeah, okay. One of the one of the best of uh, best-selling albums, believe it or not, of all time. Frank Sinatra, Jolly Christmas. Frank Sinatra wasn't exactly known for godly living style, but it's amazing, isn't it, that at Christmas time that these artists would put out. First Noel, Hark the Herald, A Little Town of Bethlehem, Silent Night, Came Upon a Midnight Clear. That they listened to the words of those songs. That's the amazing thing. All these uh, artists that any other time of year would not sing any kind of religious songs at Christmas time. One of my mom's favorite records, Mahalia Jackson, Silent Night. Used to put this on the old Magnavox and listen to that over and over and over again. Andy Williams, who died this last year, one of the best-selling albums of all time. Nat King Cole... Man alive, Chet Atkins, Christmas with Chet Atkins, guitar playing. Oh man, what would Christmas be without Christmas with the chipmunks? <laughs> Unfortunately, the record's not in here, I don't think. Oh no, there it is, it's pretty thin, okay. Christmas with the Checkman, Alvin, Simon, and Theodore. Every year, Firestone Tires, right, Dan? Used to put out Christmas albums. That was a big highlight to go to the tire store, believe it or not, the tire store, and get a Christmas album. I got a little older. One of my favorite ones was Herb Albert. Isn't that great? Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. You know that Herb Albert was Jewish? He wasn't even Hispanic. Herb Albert was Jewish from New York. Do you know that? Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. And then one, I have to, I have to confess, I'm not very proud of this. But I played this record over and over and over and over again. The new Christie Minstrels. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Look at, I mean, look at these people. 
Look at that. Isn't this the kind of people you love to hang out with? New Christie Minstrels. The New Christie Minstrels. One of the best record covers of all time has to be artwork. Uh, the New Christie Minstrels. Uh, this one here was their second album. Can you put that for me, Cliff? You got that album there? The New Christie. Isn't that great? Look at that. <laughs> I have to confess, I own that one too. And I. <laughs> And I played it, and I played it, and there's a song on there about one, two, three down. We need a little Christmas. That um, actually comes from a Broadway play that has nothing to do with Christmas, MAME, and it has to do with the stock market crash and how they needed Christmas to cheer them up. So they needed a little Christmas, and they needed it early. Some of you might, from a little bit more modern generation, might recognize it from Glee, the Glee Christmas 2, we need a little Christmas. So all that to say, thanks Cliff, all that to say, actually what we need, I've titled my message this morning, we need a lot of Christmas. We need a lot of Christmas. And we're going to connect our last study from the book of Nehemiah, believe it or not, uh, with this thought this morning. So if you open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 13, Nehemiah chapter 13. And uh, let's let's pray together before we open God's Word. Heavenly Father, we do at this time come to Your Word, and uh, we uh, we are thankful that we have Your Word, that we can read it, we can think about it, discuss it. And Lord, we thank You for this series through Nehemiah and the things we've learned. As the Apostle Paul says, all Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is given for us for our use to help us to walk and to serve You. Bless us now as we finish this study from Nehemiah, in Christ's name, amen. Now, I know we have some we're visiting with us today, and just we've been studying the book of Nehemiah, and just in a, in a thumbnail sketch, the book of Nehemiah has to do with the story of when the Jews were in exile and living in uh, Persia, and there was a group that had gone back to Jerusalem. This is kind of review for all of you. Actually, about 50,000 went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And the building project came to a stop because the surrounding people, the enemies, were uh, harassing them and stopping the work. And some people came all the way to Persia to Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer and administrator for the king of Persia. And a very high up, a very high up position, actually. And uh, he asked them how things were going, and they told him how terrible it was. And so Nehemiah asked permission of the king he went back to Jerusalem and he began the building project of rebuilding the walls of the city so they would be protected so they could finish the temple and they could finish and their, their worship and reestablish themselves in Jerusalem. And there was all sorts of opposition from the surrounding people, the various Arab nations around them that were trying to stop this work and cause them problems. And there were some internal problems. And Nehemiah and the people worked through all that. We've seen that as we went through the book of Nehemiah. Um, I'd encourage you, if, if you are visiting today, sometime just take a few minutes and just sit down and read the book of Nehemiah. It's a, it's a good read in one setting. It's not that long, really. And uh, they, they got to the point where they finished the, the, the walls. They were victorious. They were successful. Last week we concluded that with chapter 12 where they had the great celebration and worship and the choirs going around the wall and everybody was happy and, and, uh, and, and thankful to God and they accomplished what they had set out to accomplish. And so in chapter 13, 
If you look at verse 6, Nehemiah and his, this is Nehemiah's memoirs of this whole thing. But while all of this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission, and I came back to Jerusalem. So what happened is that when Nehemiah finished his work, he had asked the, he had asked the king to be gone. He, he, he was there temporarily. He asked the king if he could go back until this project was finished. The project was finished. They were successful. And Nehemiah went back to Persia. It's called the king of Babylon, but he went back to Persia and resumed his duties, we assume, as a cupbearer to the king. And while he was there, he had word again of what was happening in Palestine. And so, and actually he had been there about 12 years. He went back to Persia. We don't know how long he was there. We don't know if it was a few years or eight years. We don't know for sure. Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem. And when he comes back to Jerusalem, he finds four really disappointing situations that you would not have expected. If we had concluded the book of chapter 12, you wouldn't have expected to find this. Like I mentioned last week, it would have been nice to have said they all lived happily ever after. But that's not the case. And here's what he found. If you go back to verse 4, he says, Before this, Eliashib the high priest had put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God, that is in the temple. He was closely associated with Tobiah. And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and all the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. So Eliashib had allowed Tobiah, who if you remember going back to our earlier studies, was one of the chief enemies who tried to torpedo this work on several occasions. He has now got a room inside the temple. And this is what Nehemiah says, while this was happening, I was, I was gone. I wasn't in Jerusalem. And so in verse 8, he says, or let's look at the end of verse 7. I learned about the evil thing Eliashib, that is the high priest, had done. In providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God, I was greatly displeased. And I threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Does that remind you of any other story in the Bible? How about Jesus turning over the table and the, the, the money sellers in the temple? Nehemiah comes back, and after this temple had been cleansed, it had been purified, it had been dedicated, and they had songs of praise and worship, and after a few years, he finds out that gradually this guy had wormed his way back in, and this guy who in the previously had tried to attack from outside the walls, now has a residency inside the temple and the area that was supposed to be used for Israel's religious life and religious worship has now been taken over by this man using it for his own goods. Nehemiah comes back and he is so upset about this, he throws everything out of that room. And he throws it out, and I'm sure he threw Tobiah out, and he purified the room, verse 9, and he gave it back to them, he gave back to them the equipment of the house of God, the grain offerings, and the incense. So the, this, the religious life of the people that had been set aside for God has been gradually, over time, encroached upon to the point that now Tobiah is inside the temple. 
Nehemiah throws him out. He also learns in verses 10 and following that the tithing had been neglected. The whole system of bringing support so that the Levites and priests and the singers and those leading worship, those leading Israel could do their job. It had all gone by the wayside gradually over time. And he says in verse 11, I rebuked the officials and I asked them, why is the house of God neglected? So this whole... This, this, the whole work of, of the, I mean, the whole thing started around rebuilding the temple. And now, over time, the enemies are actually living in the temple and Nehemiah throws them out. The second thing he encounters, in verse 12, he calls together all, verse 11, he calls together the leaders. And in verse 12, all Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, oil into the storerooms. And he talks about the people he put in charge, the men Man in verse 13 that he says were responsible and trustworthy to collect the tithes and to put them in place. And he asked God in verse 14, Remember me for this, my God. Do not blot out what I have so faithfully done to the house of my God and service. This was so important. This was so important to their life as a, as a family and as a people of God and their witness to the, to the nations around them. Israel was always supposed to be a witness, a light to the Gentiles around them. And the service of the temple, without the temple tithes and offerings, the priests and Levites gradually had to go back to work into the fields. And they could not perform the duties. They could not lead the worship. They could not offer the sacrifices. And by doing this and encroaching upon the religious life of the people, the whole thing was beginning to shut down again. And they were able to accomplish from the inside what they couldn't do from the outside, attacking the city of Jerusalem. Then we come to verse 15. In those days, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Now, if you remember correctly, this is one of the things that Nehemiah reestablished was Sabbath worship and Sabbath keeping. Why is this so important for Israel? You know, the Sabbath keeping, of course, predates the Mosaic law. It goes back to, to, to creation and God created the seventh day. God rested and the principle that God asks his people to, to set aside. And this is why we set aside Sunday. We set aside not, not the tip, not the, not the exact Sabbath. We set aside the first day of the week, as we've mentioned before, because this is the day that Christ rose from the dead. But we are part of a, history in Christendom that has been going on for well over 2,000 years, going back to the early church uh, in the New Testament, of setting aside this first day to come and to worship, to spend time in God's Word, to fellowship, to encourage one another. As we mentioned last week in Hebrews where it says, do not forsake the assembling together as some have done, but rather encourage one another. Come together. This is important to do. And this is part of our, and of course in our culture today, we know that um, how different our, our culture has changed and, 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 and we don't have a day of rest. We don't have a day of Sabbath. And sometimes we pay a price for that. And not, we don't be legalistic about that. Uh, certain jobs and so on require uh, work on Sunday and so forth. But to have a day set aside for you to rest, to have time in God's Word, to have time for your family. For Israel, this was very important. And it was, and it was actually mandated by God the Sabbath was very important. And here, it had just turned into another day of commerce. And Nehemiah comes back, 
And he says, I see people treading wine. I see people selling. I see people loading and unloading grain and grapes and figs and all other kinds of things. And he says in the middle of verse 15, I warn them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. And so what's happened is they've allowed non-Jews, they can take advantage of this situation because they don't have to observe the Sabbath. They're not Jews. They don't have this requirement in their religion. And so they are taking advantage of this and they're coming in Jerusalem and they are selling their wares and goods and getting around this whole Sabbath-keeping thing by allowing these men to come in and to sell on the Sabbath. And Nehemiah looks around and says, what is this? These people from Tyre, these people from north, up, up by Lebanon, Tyre and Sidon, they are here in the city and they are selling. And they are, and they are, and, and they are taking advantage of this whole situation of, of commerce on the Sabbath when you're supposed to be resting. And I rebuked the nobles, verse 17. And I said, what is this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath? Didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that God brought in this calamity upon us, upon this city? If you read, we, this morning we're talking about the, the prophet candle. And if you read the prophets in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 27 and on, you will find a direct prophecy that if you break the Sabbath, I will destroy the gates, they will be burned with fire, and your city will be lost to you. And Nehemiah says, we are doing now exactly what the prophets had warned and exactly what our forefathers had experienced. And here we are doing it again. And so Nehemiah takes action. And in verse 19, he says, when the evening shadows fell, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open till Sabbath was over. He puts his men on the walls and he says, no more selling and buying, close the gates. Nobody's bringing stuff from Tyre or Sidon into the city. We're going to stop this. And then he finds out, that some of the people from, from this culture are camped outside the city. So they're putting their tents up outside the city walls and enticing so that, as, that they can sell and the people could go out if they had to and, and trying to entice Israel to break the Sabbath by putting up their tents and, and selling wares outside the city. And once again, Nehemiah says no. And he warns these guys. He gets up on top of the wall and he says, why do you spend the night... Verse 21, I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. Now, what's that movie with the uh, the elves that are your worst nightmare? Is that Santa Claus or something like that? Did I just, am I dreaming? You know, what's that? <laughs> no, I'm sorry, it wasn't Bing Crosby, no. But, uh, you, know, you know, Nehemiah is their worst nightmare, okay? Nehemiah stands in the wall and says, if you guys don't get out of here, I'm coming down to get you. And they leave. They are afraid of Nehemiah. They are, he, is, he means business. And they, and they clear out. And then he commands the Levites to purify and go out and guard the gates. And he insists that they keep the Sabbath. They have broken the bringing of the tithes and offerings. They have desecrated the temple. They have not kept the Sabbath. And Nehemiah is quickly putting everything back in place to reform so that the people will do what God has told them to do. The Sabbath keeping, as the Lord Jesus Christ said, when he encountered later on in the Gospels, we find a complete almost flip where it's the legalism about the Sabbath to the point that when Jesus even heals a man with a withered hand, they accuse him of what? Huh? What's he doing? He's working on the Sabbath. 
And they've kind of gone to the other extreme of legalism. And Jesus says, don't you realize that, that the Sabbath, that the Sabbath was not made for the, that, that man was made for the Sabbath, that the Sabbath is what God has given for your good, for your good. And the Jews and the Israelites have desecrated the Sabbath. That's not all. Finally, verse 23, moreover, in those days, I saw men from Judah who had married women from Ashod, Ammon, and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashod or the language of the other peoples, and they did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Nehemiah comes back to find out that they had violated God's specific prohibition about intermarrying with the neighboring people. And the reason for this it's not a racial thing. This, is a, this, this has to do with, with their worship. Because they had been warned in the Old Testament from the very beginning, when you go into that land, do not intermarry. Because if you intermarry, what will happen is there, those marriages will lead you to worship their gods. And when you worship their gods and try to worship their god and your god, you're going to end up losing your heart for God and following their gods. And he says, as he, as he explains to them here, that the number one example in Old Testament history is who? Solomon. Solomon had hundreds of wives, a thousand wives and concubines. They were all, and it led his heart astray from God. And Israel sunk so low that they began to worship the, these terrible, disgusting gods of the, of the Middle East that, that were just perverse. And he says, don't intermarry for that reason, because it will lead your hearts to their gods. And here he comes back and he finds out that the people of Israel are at the point where several of the children who have grown up while he is gone no longer can even speak the language of Hebrew, the language of temple worship. Now this one really puts Nehemiah over the top. Look what he does here. Verse 25, I rebuked them and I called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and I pulled out their hair. Do you get the, get the gist of this? Would you say Nehemiah's upset? I mean, you know, this one really put him over the top. And he's finally had it. And this, this is, and this is a way of, of, um, of disrespect, of, of showing how, how, uh, how far they'd gone. This pulling out the hair in the culture of this day was the idea of, of disgrace. And he actually physically beat some of them and, and pulled out their hair and, and, and made them take an oath and, and cursed them. And he's, and he's so upset. He's so angry about this situation that all that they had accomplished in that time he was there as a people of reinstating worship of God and we're, and dedicating a temple and all the things that in less than a generation, it's all going away. And it probably didn't happen overnight. It probably didn't, they probably didn't wake up one day and find out that this all happened. It happens as you and I know, it happens gradually. It happens slowly. It happens to where you accept it. And then you accept more and you accept more and you accept more to pretty soon you can't tell the difference. And, and, and it just seems like no one really even was that concerned about it. And Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem. He puts things in order. He establishes the Sabbath. He establishes the tithing. He kicks out the merchants. And he establishes within Israel again that they are to be pure in their relationship with in marriage. It's the family, the home, and the temple, and the marketplace. 
are all to be part of their life as God's people. You, don't, you do not compartmentalize it any more than we don't compartmentalize and our, our Christian life is not relegated to Sunday in these walls here. This is a place where we come to be fed. We come to learn. We come to be encouraged. And we leave this place. And we go out to serve God and live for God consistently. And it's all gone by the wayside. And so Nehemiah warns them. And he reminds them of what happened with Solomon. And finally, after all this is done, we, and this is, how, this is how the book of Nehemiah ends. Verse 29, Remember them, O my God, because they defiled the priestly office, the covenants of the priesthood, and the Levites. And verse 30, I purified the priests and Levites of everything foreign. I assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, O my God. And the book ends. And Nehemiah closes. Nehemiah is toward the end of the Old Testament. We'd like to think that once Nehemiah was finished and everything was put in order, they all lived happily ever after. But you probably know the story. What happens is a continual cycle and series of, of losing and gaining, going back and going forward. And we come to the New Testament, and it is, it is quite amazing as we, as we consider the story of Christmas in the next few weeks now, as we consider our each week as we light a candle and have the readings of the Advent candles and, the, and Christmas Eve at 5 o'clock and Christmas Eve, uh, we'll have a Christmas Eve service and we'll light the Christ candle. As we come to the Gospels, and it's amazing the world we enter in the Gospels compared to the Old Testament, no longer is Israel struggling with idolatry. No longer are they struggling with Sabbath breaking. Uh, no longer the, the, the intermarriage. It's gone the other side where now it's a legalism to the point that, that they are almost worshiping the keeping of the law rather than the law giver. They, 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 they criticize Jesus for doing good things because he's breaking the law. Why is it? What is this story about? We come to the Christmas story. We come to our message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason why we need a lot of Christmas is because of this. You and I can relate to what's happening in Israel. You and I know full well the temptations, the difficulties of being in the flesh of our human condition. We all know full well, as the Apostle Paul talks in Romans, about the desire to serve God and the challenge we have. And we read in the Gospels this prophecy, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means are least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. The Mosaic Law and the Old Testament system of worship, the Sabbath keeping, the priesthood, all the things that Nehemiah was concerned about, the purity, all of those things were in place temporarily because ultimately they could not deal with the issue of human sin. This is why we need Christmas. 
you go to the book of Hebrews for a moment, you will see this clearly. If you go in your New Testament to the book of Hebrews, there are two particular chapters among the other chapters that really speak so clearly to this point. In the book of Hebrews, whoever the author is, we're not told who the author of this epistle is. It's written to Hebrew believers. That's why it's called the book of Hebrews. It's written to Jewish Christians. And they have this context. And they have this understanding of the priesthood and the temple in Jerusalem. And this is still during the time where the second temple existed in Jerusalem. But in Hebrews chapter 8, dealing with the high priest and making the connection with Jesus and his new priestly ministry is of offering the sacrifice for sins. He begins in verse 1. The point of what we are saying is this. We do not have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true temple set up by the Lord, not by man. And he goes on to talk about the earthly priesthood and what they did week in, week out, year in, year out, and especially the Day of Atonement. But in verse 7, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. And then he says from Jeremiah, the time is coming, declares the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the new covenant with the house of Judah. And he goes on to say how different it's going to be and why it's going to be different. In verse 10, this new covenant I will make with the house of Israel I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that the Old Testament system, while it was in place, was to bring the people to God. But it was temporary. And it could never solve the problem of human sin. It could never solve the problem of eradicating sin or providing true forgiveness for sin apart from from something greater. In chapter 8, and then we come to chapter 10, where he says in verse 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality. And he talks about this, this repetition of the offerings and sacrifices year after year. And he says in verse 2, if it could have made them perfect, would they have not stopped being offered? In verse 3, but the sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then verse 12, but when this priest, that is Christ, had offered, notice this, for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The message of Christmas, the prophecies of the coming Messiah, are because what we see in Nehemiah, they could not keep the Old Testament law. And when they did keep it and offer sacrifices and for that remnant who out the ages, throughout the ages, who were faithful to God when they did keep it, yet even that, that law could not save them apart from the coming Christ who died on the cross and paid for our sins. This particular verse here is a very important verse, understanding what God is doing in verse 12, that this high priest Christ offered for all time when Jesus died on the cross at Calvary, 
when he shed his blood on the cross of Calvary, his blood shed on that cross is really what provided salvation for all time. For Old Testament saints, for us today in this church age, the body of Christ, for those coming, the the, the remnant during the coming tribulation, and then during the Messianic kingdom, which we believe is still to come, for those saved from beginning to end, it is all dependent on the blood of Jesus Christ. Because the author of Hebrews says very clearly that the blood of animals never could take away sins. It was looking ahead to the blood of Jesus Christ. The story of Nehemiah, while it ends on a disappointing note, is a reminder to us of sin. It's a reminder to us of the human condition. And it's a reminder as we look ahead to the prophecies of Christmas and the coming of the Messiah to be born in a stable, in a manger in Bethlehem. It's a reminder to us of God's unfolding plan of salvation. You know, really, when we we come to Christmas time, and I would ask you, uh, as, as, you know, we, we usually put something here to, to remind us of the, we have our Christmas decorations and we have this scene this year of the traditional scene of the, of, of what may have happened in the manger and our different views of when the wise men came and so on. But the, the point is, this, each year as believers, we come and we stop and we just marvel at the miracle of the Incarnation. I walked by the nursery earlier and uh, baby Sam was having a fit. <laughs> Gary's little boy is in there crying, six months old. He was mad at my wife, I think, for holding him or something. I don't know what. you know, <laughs> But he was having a fit. How is it possible? When you pick up a little baby like Sam at six months old, how is it possible that that could have been God? What an amazing, amazing story we have at Christmas time. That God became flesh. That He lived a life where He was completely obedient. He was tempted in all ways like you and I are. Every temptation you have ever faced, it says He was tempted in all those ways as well. But He never sinned. He went to the cross of Calvary. He offered himself as a sacrifice. He rose from the dead. And in this story of the birth, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the amazing story of salvation that we find in the Bible. And it's the answer to the problem that we see in Nehemiah. How is it possible that after all of this, it went back so fast? Because the Bible makes it clear that we have a sin nature and that we are separated from God. You know that Christianity is the only religion, if you want to put it that way, that clearly teaches this, that we are born with a sin nature and that every other religion in the world tries to approach God by what you can do to earn His favor. And the message of the gospel and the message of Christmas that we need a lot of, we need a lot of Christmas. The message is, there is nothing you can do because you will never solve the sin problem by your actions. 
God solved it in Bethlehem, on the cross, and at the empty tomb. And he offers you, friends, and you know, there may be someone here today, and maybe someone has come through these doors, and we're glad you have come. And you have to honestly say, you know, I, I've never received forgiveness for my sins. And I just want you to know today how much God loves you. And that this is the story. You won't, you won't become, you won't live a perfect life. You won't eradicate sin completely in your life as long as you live. But it is possible to live a life pleasing to God. Because the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within and gives you the power and the victory. And while we still struggle with sin and we still struggle with our humanity and we can relate to what happened and we as a Christian church today can understand how easy it is to fall into to patterns and, and traditions where all of a sudden we wake, wake up one day and how did they get inside like that? How did it happen? How, how come we're no longer different from anybody else? We know that can happen. But your eternal state, friends, your eternal state depends on the grace of God. And I ask you today, before you leave this place, is there any reason why you would not receive Jesus Christ as your Savior? Can you think of one good reason why you would turn down God's forgiveness? He died on the cross. He paid for your sins. And you have to accept it by faith. There is nothing you can do to earn it. That is the story of Christmas. And that's the story we're going to celebrate this month together as we celebrate the incarnation, the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He was born to die on the cross for us. That's the solution to Nehemiah, to the problem of sin. That's the solution that God offers and God provided because He loves you. We're going to close our service today with the song, Refiner's Fire. Ellen's going to come and lead that. As we sing this song, I invite you today, friend, if you've never received Christ as Savior, you can do so right where you are today. There are people here who have done that this last year, and they have passed from death into life. You can receive Christ as your Savior right where you are today as we sing this song. As we leave today, if anybody here would, if you would like to come and just pray, if you would like to if you have questions about receiving Christ the Savior, I'd love to talk to you. Just stop by the back. We'll step aside and pray. You can receive Christ where you are today through God's grace and forgiveness. And for believers today, we know, you know, there's a, there's a man in the New Testament. His name was Demas. And in Colossians, the Apostle Paul writes to the church of Colossae and says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas send you greetings. And then in 2 Timothy just a few years later, Paul writes, Demas, having loved this present world, has forsaken us and left. Yes, it is possible for us as believers today for our hearts to go cold, not to lose our salvation, but for our hearts to go cold, to do what happened in Nehemiah's day, to gradually, 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 completely lose contact with what it means to walk with God and serve God. If that's your life today, friends, I ask you, Return to the Lord. We just sang the song. This Christmas is a great time to return to God. Acknowledge your need for His Word, for His Holy Spirit to help you to live a life that pleases Him. Let's be stewards of God's 
mysteries of His Word this Christmas season and share the wonderful love of Christ with those we come in contact with. Heavenly Father, we do pray today. We just thank You, first of all, that we are saved by Your grace. We thank You for Your wonderful plan of salvation. It is the only way. It is the only way that we can be saved, that we can have the hope of eternal life and forgiveness for sins. And yet, Lord, we know that in our uh, humanity, that even uh, as we walk with you, there are times that we can gradually turn away from our walk. We can neglect your word as the people in Nehemiah's day did. We can neglect you. And, Father, we pray that that be the case today, that uh, we would just, anybody here that's in that situation, return to you, that they would return to your word, return to fellowship and to serving you. We thank you for your wonderful message of grace that we have in your word and the hope that we have. And as we, as we celebrate Christmas together, Lord, might we as a family of God just have a wonderful time celebrating the miracle, the incarnation, the hope of our salvation, and the hope of eternity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.